Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Cuba and New Orleans are tied together in many ways, from our Creole flavors to our laid-back attitude, but maybe most of all in our music. Back in December of 2015, I took the trip of a lifetime when I traveled to Cuba for their annual jazz festival. Over the course of a week there, we took excursions into the countryside to learn about tobacco production and the art of cigar making. We dined in delicious paladars, private homes that are open to visitors where delicious, authentic food is served. But most of all, Every night, we attended unforgettable concerts where the magical sound of Cuban jazz filled the night air. Recently, I learned that Cuban native, but longtime New Orleanian, Alina Fernandez is still making travel to Cuba possible for Americans. She'll demystify all the new laws and tell you about her plans for the 2020 Havana Jazz Festival. So on this week's episode, we're revisiting my special trip and learning from Alina exactly what she's got planned. Mix up the mojitos and light up the cigars. We're going to Cuba on this week's Louisiana Eats. Since 1978, Havana has been home to its very own jazz festival, one that few Americans have ever been able to experience due to the embargo between the two nations. After the Obama administration began thawing relations with Cuba, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band joined the 2015 festival's lineup. In a stroke of incredible luck, I was able to accompany the band, joining them on their landmark excursion to Cuba. For an unforgettable eight days and seven nights, I toured farms, visited markets, and ate at delicious paladars, which are restaurants operated in private homes. With my trusty sound recorder in hand, I chronicled every moment of that experience. The highlights of that December 2015 trip began on the bustling streets of Havana with our tour guide, Viviana. My name is Viviana Rives. I work uh, here in Cuba for the Havana Travel Company. On, um, based in Havana, and I do a lot of groups from all over the world, but mostly Americans. One of the incredible perks of traveling with the Preservation Hall Band was our tour guide, Viviana. The bright, beautiful, and articulate Viviana totally took us under her wing and helped us maneuver the many confusing contradictions of life in Castro's Cuba. Viviana, I'm really curious to hear from you about the changes that have taken place in the last few years 
over the farmer's ability to sell direct to restaurants, paladors, and that sort of thing, instead of having to go through the government? There's been a lot of measures related to that as a way of um, motivating people to go back to the fields and become farmers. So one of the measures is precisely that one. Now they can uh, sell directly, not only to paladares, but also to hotels. They can sign contracts directly with the hotels and become their official providers. Now, you're going to take us into Old Havana, the old part of the city. What makes Old Havana different and special? I think what it's most important about the Old Havana, it's all of the work that it's being done to preserve that part of the city, that it's said to be the colonial part, but most of the buildings, I mean not most, but a lot of them are from also the Republican period. So it's the historic center in general, and it's, it's the history of Cuba counted through the buildings. As we walk along the streets in Old Havana, there are food vendors, there are people selling from carts, selling all sorts of things, and even selling from trays and boxes, things I've never seen before. What are the things that these people are selling? Various uh, things, going from fruits to ice cream to chivirico, which is a really popular flower kind of candy with sugar, a uh, thing that is really popular in Havana, peanuts, the white cones you see all over Havana or all over Cuba, those are peanuts uh, cones. And um, in general, all those people, they have uh, licenses to sell. They're able to go wherever they want in the city. They have, besides the license, they have like an ID that identifies them as vendors, public vendors. Cuba needed a way to get foreign currency into their economy. So a dual money system was established, kooks and pesos. Foreigners can only spend kooks, and Cubans can only spend pesos. The two currencies look remarkably the same, but kooks are a bit more colorful. Street vendors and farmer's market vendors are quite eager to give you change in pesos. The exchange rate in pesos for kooks is more than 26 pesos for one kook. Pretty tricky, huh? What is this fruit? Mango. Mango. And this? Mandarina. So this is the farmer's market. This is where you come to get all of the all of the fruits, all of the vegetables, the fresh ones. What are the difference between all these tubers of Flavor is totally different. Carrots, yuca, yuca, malanga, similar to taro root, but taro root grows in the uh, swampy area. This is regular land, regular dirt. Sweet potato. Ah. So it's the flavors are totally different. At the market, I spent my cooks on a repurposed Havana Club rum pint bottle filled with something called. Ricardo's picante aphrodisiaco. El picante, el picante, la viagra cubana. Ah. Viagra cubana, aphrodisiaco. Hot pepper sauce. Ese sí está bueno y es aphrodisiaco porque viene 
picante con jengibre. Cuban food is remarkably bland, but their pepper sauce is anything but. Holy moly. Caliente. Caliente. <laughs> they make the green colored sauce from a pepper they call the wow wow pepper, which is similar to our bird's eye peppers. I didn't mind getting my change in unspendable Cuban pesos on that purchase. Okay. Our next stop was a historic chocolate shop in Old Havana. And uh, they make candies, then you can have a ch hot chocolate, a cold chocolate, and uh, sometimes, most of the times, they have coffee. At some point, Belgium was importing a lot of chocolate from Cuba, so... Viviana, explain to me, why is this the Museum of Chocolate? They created the Museum of Chocolate here with uh, many of the molds and many of the, the cups to drink chocolate that were collected in the, in the old Havana and they did like a museum here to exhibit uh, those items. It was brought to Cuba by the Spaniards okay. from Mexico and then chocolate, you know, it's said to be the drink of the gods so it was very popular in Cuba and nowadays we have a very big plantation, cocoa plantation in eastern Cuba and we even export uh, uh, that product, the cocoa or the chocolate already made, already pre-made or whatever, to Belgium. So you go all the way from growing it to making it, right here in Havana. Yes. What is more synonymous with Cuba than rum? Mojitos, anyone? Viviana led us into a rum emporium where we tasted and purchased some divine distillations that haven't ever been consumed stateside. Yet. We're going to start talking here about rum. Do you like rum? Most common or most popular rum in Cuba prior before the revolution was the Bacardi. But you know, they were very smart and they sold their pattern to the Philippines and Puerto Rico and when the revolution triumphed, they left. So it was not a Cuban um, company anymore. So uh, it was not nationalized. After uh, the Bacardi had left, uh, the Havana Club became the national rum of Cuba. That was the former Arechavala rum. Uh, it's really popular, exported to the entire world. However, we have other rums in Cuba. We have, for example, the Santiago de Cuba, we have the Caney, and those two are made in the former Bacardi factory with the same masters of rum, with uh, the same barrels, the same raw materials, and then it's a really, really good rum that is not exported anywhere. So you find it only in Cuba. Now that you can bring back a cigar and rum, that'll be a very nice one to take because you won't find it anywhere else. So here we're gonna do a little uh, tasting. This one in particular is my favorite. It's Legendario, uh, around seven years aged. So go ahead, have a, have a sip and I'll be back here. The other most sought after souvenir besides rum is of course, cigars. 
we traveled into the countryside outside of Havana to visit a tobacco farm and learn why Cuban cigars are considered the best in the world. He's, he's saying today it's tobacco weather. Because the wind is coming from, from the north. Does he have to irrigate it? año de tobacco. El año que no llueve nada. Best year for, for, for the harvest, for the crop. The year in which it doesn't rain. Pero que haga frío. But with cold weather. So he has uh, 32 acres here. 150,000 plants. And he plants uh, 150,000 plants. Todo manual. Everything by hand. Plantamos planta por planta. One by one. Y hoja por hoja. And they harvest leaf by leaf. Se necesitan cinco hojas diferentes. To make a good cigar, you need five different leaves. De dos variedades de plantas. Of two varieties of plants. Una, tabaco negro de sol. One, black tobacco, the sun variety. Que es este. This one. El otro, tabaco negro tapado. The other one, tabaco negro tapado, would be the one that you cover with like a mosquito net. Pero el aroma. Es muy but, but the smell, which is the, the, the aroma, which Como is very libro, important. It's produced under the sun. And where did he learn all that? I think here. Dice que donde aprendiste todo eso. This is a family tradition. La mejor universidad. Best university in the world. Uh, <laughs> how many generations? ¿Cuántas generaciones? Three. Three. Now he's going to invite you to drink a coffee. And he'll show to you how to make a cigar. So that you see why it is said that it's uh, the best tobacco land in the world. So let's go through here. Come closer a little bit in between. So this is the first wrap, the one that he has in, in his hands now. You take out the, the central nerve of the, of the, the vein of the leaf. And then you put one, one half on top of the other half of the leaves. So then he's going to use the filling, the inside part. Same part, but different position within the same plant. So this one is the flavor or the strength of the cigar. This one is combustion and this one is aroma. Then you put it in this press and then for 30 minutes they put it over there. In the very corner there is a kind of artisan made press. After 30 minutes they cut all what is left, what is out of the mold. And then they turn the cigar and put it again. 10 more minutes. After those 40 minutes, that inside part is ready for the final wrapper. As you can imagine, we'd worked up quite a hunger. 
Our meal in a countryside paladar, located on an organic farm, was by far one of the most memorable and delicious. Interestingly, most Cuban food is organically grown. Why? Because they haven't had access to the chemicals and pesticides that have polluted our American agriculture. We were greeted by Mrs. Garcia, the beautiful, blonde, and very pregnant farmer's daughter who had prepared our lunch. Mi nombre es Rachel Garcia y acá estamos en la finca ecológica del Paraíso. Esta es la primera finca orgánica en Viñales. So she just said they've been five years with the condition, with the uh, classification of national excellency, because everything is organic. Eco uh, organic. All organic here. Yes. What are some of the foods that you cook? Bueno, acá hacemos el cerdo. So pork, lamb, chicken, rice and beans, a lot of vegetables like uh, squash, like yuca, like sweet potatoes, goat also, all kinds of things, but all made with charcoal, vegetable charcoal, cooked with the uh, vegetable charcoal uh, ovens, kind of. Yes, very rustic and beautiful. What was your motivation in doing this? My dad is uh, the owner and the starter of everything. She runs the food business after people started to come here looking for food, but he was the one that uh, created the whole idea. I asked if I could meet her daddy, the farmer. So she took me around to the outdoor kitchen to meet him. Third world kitchen conditions prevailed as chickens were slaughtered and roasted over open fires and dogs roamed free in the muddy yard. Hola. 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 I would like to know what motivated you to begin farming organically. This place right here, it's uh, uh, 204 meters above the sea level. And to be able to grow things here, they had to do a lot of terraces. So the best way uh, to produce here is uh, doing it in an organic way. The farm is a uh, national excellency. That's a kind of title awarded uh, to farms in Cuba by national um, uh, institutions like the Ministry of Agriculture, for example. They do rotations all year round. So that organic kind of uh, producing was what motivated him. That That's the way it used to be before. So he's like taking back those uh, traditions of not using uh, machines, but animals. How long has your family been farming? ¿Por cuánto tiempo su familia ha estado en, en, en la agricultura? No, no, ellos siempre estaban en la agricultura. Since he was born, no. always. Lo que nos dedicábamos a otro tipo de cultivo. But he would, they would do other kind of uh, crops and harvesting. Hoy reconozco que la agricultura orgánica es lo máximo en el mundo. Now he recognizes that organic agriculture is the best thing in the world. Well, the food is very delicious, and so your daughter is that delicious cook. Is this old family food? Is it food that she has created? So his daughter runs all the kitchen uh, thing, all the food thing, but I think it's all traditional food from the Cuban countryside. How long have people been coming to your restaurant here? After the hurricanes, Gustav Eich and Paloma in 2008, the farm was devastated. 
Three years ago, they like started to recover. Does the state officially recognize organic? Yeah, the, the state uh, does it, and actually he's given more land uh, for what, what he's doing. And then he has like contracts with the state to provide food to the senior care center and the maternity home also. They have contract, and he's the one that provides the food directly to them. And also a lot of houses who have uh, rooms for rent in Viñales, they buy directly from him. Is it very difficult to farm organically here? ¿Es difícil producir orgánico? No. Eh, yo pienso que no. Que la, lo, que hay ten, lo que hay que tener es deseo de hacer las cosas. You only need to have the will to do it. Highlights for my 2015 trip to Cuba with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band for the Havana Jazz Festival. In January 2020, the festival will be celebrating its 35th year. Coming up next, we meet Alina Fernandez, who's leading a trip to Cuba for Americans, especially for that event. She tells us her story and clears up some confusion about the new travel restrictions. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Poppy Tucker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph's on the Park, overlooking City Park's ancient oaks, serving locally sourced Gulf seafood, meats, and farm fresh produce all presented with a global spin by Chef Chip Flanagan. Lunch, dinner, Saturday and Sunday brunch, and private parties at 900 City Park Avenue in Mid-City. My name is Alina Fernandez, and I am the president of Cuba Travel, New Orleans. Alina Fernandez is a Cuban native who immigrated to New Orleans with her parents at the age of nine. The year was 1967, six years after the United States officially severed diplomatic relations with Cuba. Alina wouldn't return to her childhood home of Havana again until 1992. That same year, she opened Super Saver Travel, the first agency in Louisiana to be licensed by the U.S. Treasury Department to operate as a Cuba Travel Services provider. Today, she's the president of Cuba Travel New Orleans, a company that specializes in organizing legal trips to Cuba. The Louisiana Eats crew joined Alina in her office 
located just off Airline Drive in Metairie. Before we talked about her travel agency, I wanted to know what motivated her to connect Americans with the Cuban people. I began by asking what inspired her to take that very first trip back to Havana 25 years after she and her family left it behind. Oh, good question. I left when I was nine, uh, but I, my heart never left Cuba, even though I left young. I always had the blood, the, the Cuban blood in me. A lot of people come from Cuba and they come young and they forget about Cuba, but it was not me. So I always wanted to go back and I always said, one day I will go back, and I did. And I'm very happy I did. So how old were you when you went back to Cuba? 36, I was 36 years old when I went back. It's so funny because when I first went, decided to go to Cuba, my entire family was having a fit. You know, I said, why are you going to Cuba? You know, you, you're going to start working with the um, communist people. I said, no, no, no. I want to go back to Cuba and I want to be able to be able to do Cuba here in New Orleans. I was scared because I thought that I, when I would go to Cuba, I would find people dressed in army, you know. And no, I was surprised. You know, it was normal. I didn't... I didn't see the change. I didn't feel the change. Maybe because I, I left Cuba when I was nine, so I wouldn't know the difference like my parents would. So it didn't affect me, but I love the people, and the other thing I love is the food. Lobster. I can't afford to eat lobster here, but I can afford to eat lobster in Cuba. And they make it so delicious. There was one particular paladar that I loved, and matter of fact, now when I went, I kept eating there every day, my friend kept saying, Hey, you're not going to change paladar. <laughs> they have very good cooks in Cuba. They do. What are some of the lovely pastimes that, that you like to do when you're there? The beach. I love the beach. Um, Baradero is beautiful. I think I've gone to Cancun and I've gone to Bahamas, but I think beaches like Cuba, there's none. They're the most beautiful beaches I've ever seen in the world. I, if things would change in Cuba, I think I would move back over there. What made you decide to become a travel agent and eventually have your own agency in order to take people to Cuba? Well, I did have a travel agency. I was a travel agency before I went uh, to Cuba. As a Cuban, I was able to go. American at that time were not able to go, but as a Cuban, I was able to go. And we didn't have no travel agency here in New Orleans to serve the Cuban people. And that's when I decided to open Super Saver Travel. And now I am with Cuba Travel New Orleans. We're trying to get the New Orleans to come to Cuba with us. Currently, Alina's travel agency is offering a January 2020 trip from New Orleans to Cuba for the 35th annual Havana Jazz Festival. When I went with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band back in 2015, that excursion was licensed as a people-to-people -people exchange, one of the 12 categories of travel authorized by the U.S. government. In June, the Trump administration eliminated people-to-people -people travel to Cuba, and since then, many Americans are under the false impression that they can't visit the country anymore. With over 25 years of experience leading trips to Cuba, Alina has been able to navigate the policy changes that inevitably happen with each new presidential administration. 
there's a lot of confusion out there, you know, especially with Americans. They're very confused. Uh, but this has happened before. I mean, I've lived it. Uh, the Clinton administration was the first one who came out with a people-to-people culture exchange, and that's how people used to go to Cuba. Americans used to go to Cuba. Then we had the Bush administration, who for eight years closed the door on Cuba. Then we had the Obama, and then now we got Trump, and it's just back and forth, back and forth. But that doesn't mean that Americans can't go to Cuba. The main thing that America needs to understand that we have 12 categories to go to Cuba. And yes, President Trump did remove the people to people, but we still have support of the Cuban people. I have worked more with the support of the Cuban people than with the people to people. So the category that you're traveling to Cuba under is referred to as the support of the Cuban people? Yes, it's a category that allows you to go to Cuba. And what does that mean, really? What that means is that you're going to go to Cuba and you're going to support the Cuban people directly to their economy. Instead of going to the government's uh, restaurants, you're going to go to their restaurants. You're going to eat at the Paladars, which Paladars are restaurants that people have made from their home. They had a home, a big home, and they turned into a restaurant. It's just like when you go to Cuba and you stay in a casa particular, like bed and breakfast. you directly helping the economy for that Cuban person. So it's in support, so they feel supported. And I always done that, I always done that. When I even brought donations to Cuba, I always get private taxi, driver, you know, I try to help the Cuban people. Years ago, even though when we had people to people category to go, we still had to go to all these red tapes. You had to have a license, a specific license that allowed you to travel to Cuba under that category. Obama eliminated that, which that was good. So Americans are even more free now to travel to Cuba because you don't need to have a specific license. You go in a general license. And what does that mean? It means that you don't have to ask permission to the government, to the United States government. The only requirement you have is you have to have your paperwork for five years. And that means have a record of what you did in Cuba. But It's easy. Nowadays, it's more easy than years ago. Alina's travel agency's package trip to Cuba complies with the support for the Cuban people travel category in several ways. By participating in the Havana Jazz Festival each night, travelers support the Cuban musicians and attendees. And during the day, the itinerary includes visits to music schools, museums, tobacco farms, and paladars. This gives Americans the opportunity to engage with the locals directly. You have a very exciting trip planned in 2020. And I was fortunate enough personally to have traveled before to the Havana Jazz Festival. Tell me the inspiration for this trip. Why did you decide that this was something you wanted to take people from New Orleans to Cuba to see? Hey, we are in the city of jazz. And there's a lot of comments between history between Cuba and New Orleans. 
I just think it was needed for a travel agency to step up and say, okay, New Orleanians, if you want to go to Cuba for the Jazz Fest, in support of the Cuban people, and to participate, we are here to serve you. We are here to make that happen. There's going to be musicians from all over the world. Um, we have musicians from the United States. We have musicians from Australia, Spain, Germany, you name it. And it's, it's good to go because you're going as a group. You're not going to be lost. Well, what can I do and what can I not do? You know, this is everything is by guideline, by the regulation. So you're not doing nothing that is illegal. What are some of the other special experiences that people will have on the trip with you? Well, I think one of the best of all is going to be going to a tobacco farm. But it's not just a tobacco farm. This is a famous uh, owner of a farm. His name is Hector Luis Prieto. He's the most popular tobacco farmer in Cuba. We're definitely going to go to see fine art, and we're also going to see private painters that are going to be selling their paint at a reasonable price. So there's going to be a lot of interaction with the Cuban people. Cuba has been the prohibited apple for 60 years. The one who's being left out are the Americans. All over the world, people go to Cuba. The Canadians, number one of tourism in Cuba, and the Spaniel. So any American that has the opportunity to go to Cuba is going to take advantage of this trip and go. That was Alina Fernandez, president of Cuba Travel New Orleans. If you'd like to learn more about Alina's trip to the Havana Jazz Festival, which will take place in January 2020, visit her website, cubanneworleans.com, or call 504-252-9774. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Which bean is most closely tied to Cuban cuisine? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Located 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter, the North Shore's Tammany Taste features the chefs and farmers, brewers and bakers of St. Tammany Parish's culinary scene. Visit LouisianaNorthShore.com to discover more. Louisiana's North Shore, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Additional support for Louisiana Eats comes from Cuba Travel New Orleans, a local travel agency now offering an authentic trip to the acclaimed Havana Jazz Festival in 2020 designed to support the Cuban people through music and arts. 
visit cubanneworleans.com or call 504-252-9774 to book your trip today. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Which bean is most closely tied to Cuban cuisine? The black turtle bean is a small, shiny bean variety commonly called black beans. It's especially popular in Latin America, but it also makes an appearance in the Cajun and Creole cuisines of South Louisiana. In Cuba, the black bean is as ubiquitous as our beloved New Orleans red bean. It's the main ingredient in Moros y Cristianos, a dish that appears on every Cuban restaurant menu and on virtually every Cuban dinner table. Moros y Cristianos translates as Moors and Christians, a reference to the period in the 15th century when wealthy Spanish Christians drove the Moors from the south of Spain into Africa. History aside, black beans are also really good for you. They're packed with a powerful 7 grams of protein in each half-cup serving and contribute over 7 grams of fiber as well. The iron, phosphorus, calcium, magnesium, manganese, copper, and zinc all contribute to bone health. And besides, they're just plain good. Don't wait to go to Cuba for Moros y Cristianos. Black beans have been part of the offerings from Camellia brand beans for almost a hundred years. You'll find that recipe and lots others by visiting CamelliaBrand.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and black beans are good for you and simply good Louisiana Eats. My name is Orlando Vega of Congreso Cubano. Orlando Vega is a Miami transplant and the son of Cuban immigrants. Orlando has taken his passion for his grandmother's Cuban meals and turned it into a thriving catering business, Congreso Cubano. He stopped by our studio to tell us all about how he's keeping his Cuban roots alive here in New Orleans and how he plans to take over the world. Congreso Cubano was a was a brainchild of just uh, homesickness. I uh, one day decided to make uh, some medianoche sandwiches, and everyone loved them. And then I think one day I decided to make some carne asada, and everyone loved it. And then uh, the next day, my friend and I posted up outside the Maringi Opera House with a table full of Cuban sandwiches. I didn't even have a name. I think we had 20 sandwiches there and some fried plantains. And uh, we sold out in half an hour flat. And when someone asked us, what are you guys called? My my good friend Paul just blurted out Congreso Cubano. <laughs> and we lived on Congress Street. And, uh, and uh, it stuck. I loved it. And I rolled with it. And it has become the beast it is today. Well, it really has become a beast. You know, you may have popped up on a lot of people's radar when you appeared in 2017 for the first time at Jazz Fest. You don't have bricks and mortar, but you got a big catering business. So mm-hmm. tell us about all that. I'm, I'm trying to sell the story more than make 
uh, then we are making a huge profit every night. We're not selling food uh, that's high luxury end. Our mission statement is to share these, these the flavors of Cuba that we feel have such a significant place in New Orleans history, to share those flavors with our community and share them in a non-alienating way. This is cocina, uh, comida casera, y cocina casera. This is home food. This is sharing food. This is family food, where it comes from. And um, we don't we don't want to dress this up. We don't want to. I don't want to serve you my grandmother's dish for forty dollars, you know, full of bells and whistles and with all the frills. And and we want to serve this to you the way we grew up enjoying it, which is a non alienating, humble, uh, inviting uh, in an inviting way. So we love our story. We love what the story our food is trying to tell. But also, it's a story of knowing your limitations. The only capital I invested when we started this was my tax return for 2015, I think it was. <laughs> and slowly, you know, I started rolling croquetas out of the trunk of my Honda Element and putting things together in little picnic tables and yards without any equipment. And it was, it was very organic. Um, and we wouldn't be here without the friends and family supporting us. But yeah, we had a lot of limitations. We still do. We don't have a brick and mortar. So it's all about really sitting down every month and saying, how much more can I bite off for the next month? How can I grow this 5% you know, in the absence of a half a million dollar check to, to turn this into your dreams overnight? It's a matter of little baby steps. I'd love to hear the story of what inspired you to bring Cuban food, your style of Cuban food, to New Orleans. More than anything, it was New Orleans that inspired me to bring a Cuban food back up here. I, I grew up in Miami thinking that Miami was by far the most Cuban city outside of Cuba um, with the deepest Cuban roots and the longest Cuban uh, history. And upon moving here almost immediately, I discovered how wrong I was that Miami, you know, as a city barely exists into the 19th century. But uh, by the mid-19th century from New Orleans, we had uh, famous Cubans like Narciso Lopez trying to launch revolutions, you know, Cuban revolutions from here. And uh, so the Cuban history here just really is two, three times as deep as it is in Miami. And that, that fact blew me away. And it seemed like something that uh, someone had to bring to the table. If it wasn't me, it was just missing. You have such an interesting family background because you grew up in Miami. You're the first generation of Cuban immigrant parents, but your family has ties to Spain and Cuba. Tell us tell us about your extended family and, and what you've learned from them. So, yeah, another, another place of uh, symmetry there. Um, my family's spread across basically all the places that influenced uh, the building of New Orleans. My family, they were all born in Cuba. Um, my parents, both sides of the family, left when they were teenagers to Spain, where my uncles and aunts and cousins and grandparents still live in Sevilla, in Andalusia. And as you may know, Sevilla, half of what we see around us, all the iron, the brickwork, is, is straight from Sevilla during the Spanish period. So that's where I grew up going to see my family. We weren't allowed, uh, I wasn't allowed to visit Cuba until recently. So that was already in my blood. I was born in the United States, raised in Miami. So it kind of brought it full circle, 90 miles from Havana again there. But having, uh, having that whole journey, I guess, uh, behind my history just gave me a lot of 
a lot of perspective that I think a lot of people from just one place with a family, you know, deep roots in a certain place uh, don't have. And when I came to New Orleans, I saw a city built by Cubans from Spain and so on. And it just seemed like a logical extension of that story. When did you get to visit Cuba for the first time? I was, after several years of petitioning, I was allowed to visit Cuba last year for the first time. And I remain the only member of uh, my nuclear family, or really I think my extended family, to, to go back and build that bridge or try to keep that bridge up, if you will. Um, Did yeah. you find family members there? Did you Absolutely. Go visit family? I, st- I still have a lot of family and we're still close to them and we still help them and send them yeah, send them some revenue and, and try to help however way we can. And uh, we've never lost touch with them. But no one's ever really crossed over. You know, we've had one or two of them visit us for a week here, but always uh, on a very short visa, on a very tight leash. You mentioned your grandmother's food. So do you have her recipes? Are some of these things you're cooking actually family recipes? Well, it would be a stretch to call them family recipes. They are family adjustments made in paper on uh, Nitsa Viapol's famous Cocina Criolla cookbook. So I've got about three copies of my family's Nitsa Viapol's. Nitsa Viapol was the uh, the Cuban version of... Um, Julia Child? Of Julia Child, exactly. <laughs> um, so every Cuban grandmother had her Nitsa Viapol book. Um, and I've got all three of my grandmother's books at home there in varying states of condition, um, but all full of their pencil marks and their notes and their adjustments and so on. And uh, and that, that that's my... My primary source is right there. It's such a wonderful, wonderful connection to have your grandmother's books. Yeah. She must be very proud. She's very proud. Uh, she loves it. We speak on the phone every day, uh, 30 minutes, and I tell her stories, and and she's uh, she's great. She's happy she can have uh, a piece of Cuba, I think, on this side of the ocean to be proud of because she's, she's too old to ever go back and deal with that mess. It sounds to me like authenticity is one of your biggest credos. Absolutely. I don't feel that food is sacred or recipes are sacred, but I do think recipes should be respected. I, 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 I'm all about changing and evolving and influencing foods. I don't think uh, a, a country's food or a country's traditions should be uh, static but you do have to respect the context of that food and make sure that no matter how you change that food, it is projecting and it is communicating the same thing that it always did, if that makes any sense. What comes next for Congreso Cubano? What comes next for Congreso Cubano? Uh, the world. Uh, we're we're going to take over the world. We are currently in the process of expanding our catering options uh, and our catering operations. And we are always exploring the opportunities for brick and mortars and so on. But uh, we, we're in no rush. We, we really love our, our values. We really love our mission statement. And we feel very lucky that people four years later, you know, most restaurants fail in the first year or two. So that four years later, people still find our food and our flavors to be as fascinating as they do, um, it's just a, it's a godsend. It's a blessing. You know, New Orleans is a is a creature of habit and tradition, and I think there are a lot of people here doing amazing food that pays great homage to our Creole and Cajun tradition. But there's still a lot, a lot of room, a lot of room for more, and people are very hungry for it. Um, 
And in many ways, as I've expressed, I think this is an integral part of our Creole and Cajun tradition, this food as well. So the, the reception is, is wonderful. People love our food. And some people are a little curious about it. Some people are a little intimidated by it. But we are a loud, friendly staff of Latinos ready to answer your questions. So, uh, so please just step up and don't be shy. Well, I think New Orleans is lucky to have such an authentic piece of Cuba here in thank you. you. So thank you so much for telling us your story and coming to see us on Louisiana. Oh, it is my thank absolute you. pleasure. Muchísimas gracias. That was Orlando Vega of Congreso Cubano. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions and hear all about upcoming special events by visiting poppytooker.com. You can find videos, recipes, and even order cookbooks there. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarain's, Camellia Brand Beans, and St. Tammany Tourist Commission. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Palace Cafe, home of the weekend jazz brunch, featuring a build-your-own Bloody Mary bar, located in the historic Whirline Music Building on Canal Street, original theme music composed by David Pomerleau, and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.